Subscribe to The Spectator this Christmas and get the next 12 weeks of print and online access as well as a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, all for just £12. This offer is available in the UK only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Santa to subscribe. Hello and welcome to this special Christmas episode of the Edition podcast. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On the podcast, I'll be looking back on the year in politics, discussing Christmas traditions in Ukraine, hearing an extract from Tom Holland's interview with Robert Harris for the magazine, investigating the beauty of Antarctica, and finally, asking what makes a great pantomime dame. Throughout the podcast, we will also hear some of the answers from our Christmas poll question, What Gives You Hope? Firstly, what a year in politics it has been. 2022 has seen five education secretaries, four chancellors, three prime ministers, two monarchs, but only one political team to make sense of it all. I'm joined now by the spectators Fraser Nelson, Katie Balls and Isabel Hardman. Fraser, in his column for the magazine, James Forsyth suggests that the turmoil of this year is a sign that British politics is becoming fundamentally less stable. Do you agree? It was truth that if you spend like drunken Keynesians, as the Conservatives have done, you then find it difficult to reconcile this with your low tax pledge, which you give voters at election time. And now this is the, um, the, the, the dilemma upon which the Conservatives find themselves impaled upon. Now, it's, you know, you'll hear some Tories who will basically be saying, well, you know, no man born of woman could govern this country, it's ungovernable, the problems are too surmountable. No, no, if the government is good enough, then you can find a way through. So I think we will have to brace ourselves for the era of Tory excuses about reasons of why for demographic purposes, etc. It's just very difficult to govern this country. I mean, it's not. The Tories have got a stonking majority. If you're one of like many, many governments in Europe with a very, very small majority, governing is very difficult. But if you're the Conservative Party, you can do pretty much whatever you want. If you struggle to govern under those circumstances, then I'm afraid to say it's on you. So I don't have that much sympathy. I mean, take the small boats dilemma, for example. They're wandering around saying, how can we stop these Albanians claiming asylum when, when Sweden and France reject them out of hand? The answer is quite simple. You can pass a law which says that Albania doesn't qualify because it's a safe country. End of problem. But their inability to come up with these legal fixes leaves them blaming complexity in things. And I'm afraid to say I am not particularly persuaded by that same argument. And Katie, speaking of uh, struggling to govern, you interviewed Rishi Sunak for, for the Christmas issue as well. Did you get the impression that he's struggling to, to set an actual agenda before the next general election rather than just going from crisis to crisis, crisis management to crisis management? Yeah, well, I think we've seen the first stage of his premiership has been firefighting when it comes to the economy. And he made the point that it was an achievement of uh, his chance, the Jeremy Hunt, um, but effectively his government to come up with an autumn statement at a really difficult period and get MPs en masse to back tax rises, things that would have been seemed pretty repellent over the summer. And he said that that's something we should reflect on. The problem for Rishi Sunak is ultimately when things are going quite well or when you achieve something, that's not what people focus on. And the fact that Rishi Sunak has managed to calm the markets, he looked where currency is, gilt markets, the fact we're not talking about those things every day does simply just mean you're now in a situation where Tory MPs and figures in the media are saying, well, what's next? What's your vision? And he did set out some of his you know, 
plans for 2023. You talked about the free buckets. Don't think that's exactly going to roll off the tongue on an election leaflet. But these will be the areas where he wants to uh, focus the most, one being the economy, one being public service reform, and then also offering some hope to young people, which I think if you look at the autumn statement, it really did feel like young people were one of the biggest losers. And I think what was quite interesting talking to him is he kept talking about how radical he was. But ultimately, I think in recent weeks, partly because he's come to certain agreements with Tory rebels on the levelling up bill, on onshore wind farms, on mandatory housing targets, there's definitely a perception that actually he can be pushed around or perhaps he's, you know, just keeping his party on track, but isn't able to make his own you know weather and I said to him you know well what do you say to those who say you are too soft and he said well there is a difference between being polite and being soft and actually they are two very different things so eventually he said well what are you then a polite radical and he said yes exactly that so I think we'll have to see in the next six twelve months how effective polite radicalism really is. And Isabel when we're talking about how uh, politically changeable this year has been perhaps one of the the biggest changes, in fact, hasn't been the, the leader at the uh, who, who's, who's inside number 10, but it's been the fortunes of the Labour Party, who are now, uh, when they, start, they started the year with a moderate lead in the polls, and now they have anything between a 11-point and 20-point lead over the Tories. I mean, what, Labour must be uh, very grateful for the year that's just gone by. What do you think we have in store for the Labour Party in 2023? I think they'll probably have a wobble in 2023 in the sense that they feel like they've come so far over the past 12 months in terms of moving from party management, still focusing on anti-Semitism, on Corbynites, on the sort of internal party machinery, to moving to being more outward looking, to getting you know this stonking poll lead, to actually being talked about as a party in you know in, in waiting to become a government I think the next year may well see them then have that sort of um you know not pride comes before a fall but a bit of a confidence wobble because it is still a little bit of a way till the next election there are lots of things that I think are going to come to the fore in terms of tensions within the shadow cabinet over vision over messaging and then tensions within the team around Keir Starmer as well over how bold to be over what to emphasise, whether, you know, the fairer, greener future slogan that we've seen from Labour this autumn and winter is really one that's going to take the party into the next election or whether it actually just sounds a bit like a washing up liquid advert. So I I, I think it was interesting when I uh, wrote a piece for the magazine a little while ago now about Ed Miliband's influence that uh, I think it's fair to say that some people were upset by that because they'd got used to nice things being written about Labour and sort of pieces about how well everything was going. And I mean, I did point out to them that at the time that if their worst problem is that one of their shadow cabinet members is a bit influential, then I think they can probably sort of rest easy. But there is a sort of, I think, a feeling amongst a lot of people on the front benches, on the front bench and um, around Kistama they feel like they're so close and it could so easily still be snatched from them. The stakes are so high. That's certainly something that the leader, Keir Starmer, is very keen to emphasise. I mean, I talked to lots of his top team and they say that he's sort of obsessively messaging them about the, the greatest danger being complacency to the extent that he's sort of sounds a bit like a party pooper at times because they say, you know, you could just be happy sometimes, Keir, about how things are going. But he's really worried that they will have that wobble and it will be a damaging wobble rather than the sort of thing that every party that's been in opposition for this long goes through as it as it approaches the election that it could win. Fraser, one of the more dramatic 
features of of this year, of course, was the fall of Boris Johnson. Uh, and in this Christmas issue, he's written the diary, the Christmas issue, which is his first thing he's written for the UK press since he left office. He says that he's spending his time learning huge chunks of the, the Iliad by heart. It sounds very jolly, but we all know that Boris Johnson uh, did not leave very willingly from, from Downing Street. We can't surely have seen the last of him in our political life. I think we are going to see more from Boris Johnson. He, um, by the way, I mean, saying he's studying um, Homer, and that's exactly what Gladstone did quite extensively when he was Prime Minister. Gladstone actually wrote to the Spectator to point out the extent to which you could barely get through a day without reading Homer. So I think Boris is back in the mental gym preparing for a second bout. I mean, you know, like Addison, Washington, the guys who created America did so by reading the, the greats. So I think what we're going to see from Boris Johnson is a period of strategic silence probably getting a little bit louder towards the next general election. Those who've spoken to him recently say that he doesn't quite feel vindicated, but he is thinking to himself, well, there were problems when I was Prime Minister, but nobody was saying that we were nailed on to lose the general election in the way that we are now. He was thinking that the Conservatives were, were troubled. They might have been 10 points behind, but they weren't 20 or 30 points behind, as we've seen with the Trust and Sunak era. So I think, you know, obviously his last attempts to come back a few weeks ago, which he pulled dramatically when um, it turned out that nobody was really backing him and he barely scraped 100 MPs for the nomination. I think he is somebody who does believe that the Conservatives will eventually come back begging to him. But meanwhile, he'll be doing a whole bunch of things um, with his life. I mean, you know, he'll, I dare say there's another book or two in him. He's getting speeches for staggering amounts of money. And also, of course, writing The Spectator Diary back in his old magazine, taking pride of place in the Christmas treble issue. And Katie, just to return to your Sunak interview, you wrote the interview, of course, before the announcement this week about how the government's going to deal with the small boats crisis. Do you think that um, that his announcements this week have or have not proven what he claimed in the interview, that he can be tough about the big issues? So I don't think what he announced this week is his full solution to the small boats crisis. It's a five-point plan, and these are all the steps you can do effectively without primary legislation. And therefore, when you're looking at some of the measures... I think it's a package. I think one of the ones that's perhaps more controversial, at least if you looked at Theresa May's face as Rishi Sunak was speaking, is almost lowering the threshold when it comes to modern slavery legislation because they think that is something that can be abused by those who will then argue they have a right to stay. So there's a suite of measures. I think in the new year, you're going to see uh, legislation coming forward, you know, to toughen up the current situation. Is it going to fix the problem completely? Um, no. I think even if you look at Rishi Sunak's promise to you know, clear the backlog, that's only from a certain point in time. It's not to you know, clear it completely. But I did get a sense yesterday, at least speaking to Tory MPs, that the lease was not badly received. I think you're always going to have a situation where people think you can go further, particularly on this issue. But I think one of the criticisms of Rishi Sunak is the sense that he has just not, um, you know, he hasn't really taken a grip of events. He's been, you know, dictated to by events. So I think just looking as you're on the front foot coming up with your own plan was something that some MPs on the right of the party were happy to see. And I think keeping MPs on the right of the party, as I think we've seen in the, what, onto a third Tory lead this year, is an important thing to do to stay safe. And that's partly why small boats, which Rishi Sunak said was a thing other than the economy he's spent the most time on. And, you know, it's not really even a home office issue. It's a number 10 issue. It obviously helps a lot with that part of the party. I was just picking up on Fraser's point about Boris Johnson. I don't think this is likely 
But speaking to Tory MPs, I mean, there are lots who don't think it's completely impossible that Rishi Sunak has a really, really bad six months, a really bad local elections. And then Boris Johnson thinks maybe this is my time to start saying I'm an election winner. And, and look, as, someone, as one MP said to me, you know, it would be totally crazy, but we've had a lot of totally crazy in the past 12 months. So, so what's to say we don't get more? And I think when you just think about some of those dynamics, whether you think that is complete fiction and lunacy to get onto, you know, would it be would it even be a fourth leader or would it just be returned to the first um <laughs> whatever you think about that I do think things like showing that he you know can have a grip on small boats and the things that the right of the party and that voter base care about is gonna be really important to trying to keep some of the critics at bay Isabel just finally we we did a, a poll question to to various great thinkers and public figures as we do most years with our Christmas issue and the poll question this year was what gives you hope and lots of different people answered it, including Prime Minister Rishi Sunang. But I must say, if, if you're a sort of average Tory MP right now, you might think there is is not very much to give you to give you hope. In fact, that's why we're seeing so many high-profile MPs such as Sajid Javid and uh, rising stars such as Deanna Davidson say they're not going to stand in the ne- next election. Uh, if you are a Tory MP going into 2023, do you have any grounds for hope? I mean, I think they probably do have more grounds for hope than they did when Liz Truss was Prime Minister. This is all sort of, you know, we're setting very low bars here. Talking to a lot of them over the past few weeks, they feel that at least the economy is not in meltdown, at least the markets are calmer, they trust Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, those two men speak their language um, and have done what is necessary to calm that down and so when you talk to them they say I'm less desperate than I was and the the likelihood of us winning the general election has got a bit bigger but they're not saying you know we're gonna win the next general election it's all nailed on now what they're basically saying is it just got a bit less impossible and for a lot of them including MPs actually who've had conversations with Rishi Sunak where he's been trying to persuade them to stay and not to stand down and go off and do something more satisfying. They, he obviously gives them the impression that he thinks they can win the next election. He really believes that. And you have, you know, you have to sort of offer that, if not delusion, that sort of willing suspension of disbelief when you're the prime minister. Uh, otherwise, the whole thing collapses very quickly. But I think they feel that that level of conviction at least gives them a sense that the party will be in some kind of shape to be rebuilt after an election defeat, whereas they were really in a sort of desperate place talking about years in the wilderness. Fortunately, weren't in a desperate place for very long because Liz Truss wasn't prime minister for very long. But uh, they um, they have grounds for hope, even if it's a sort of very long-term hope. Thank you, Fraser, Katie and Isabel. And now we're going to hear from the historian Robert Toombs with his answer to our Christmas poll, What Gives You Hope? Hope? Outwardly cheerful I may be, but my inner voice says humbug. Shambling beasts are being born amid a geopolitical earthquake. Our planet is polluted by forces we cannot control. Criminals run half the world. At home, we are beset by multiple failures, and those chiefly responsible still control our national institutions and demean our culture. Europe and America are falling apart, while Russia and China threaten Armageddon. Yet the Ukrainian people, fighting for liberty, nation and democracy, 
have reversed the advance of oppression. Are we still capable of the same resolve if need be? That's my hope. Thank you, Robert. Next, Christmas is a time to spare a thought for our neighbours. While in the UK we have our own hardships with rising energy prices and a cost of living crisis, families in Ukraine are facing Christmas under siege. I'm joined by the spectators Svetlana Monetsia and, dialing in from Lazarivka, just outside of Kiev, the author Andrei Kirkov. Andrei, you write a beautiful piece in the Spectator Christmas issue where you say that Christmas in Ukraine will be very different this year, and not just because of the obvious reason, but because there has been a change in tradition. I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners about that. Well, actually, Ukrainian Orthodox Church allows now uh, their confessionaries to celebrate uh, Christmas together with Europe on the 24th, 25th of December, which actually means that all other special days, special religious days around Christmas are also to be moved two weeks ahead. But uh, frankly speaking, actually, I am now talking to you from my village, from Lazarivka, and I was talking to my neighbors who are mentioned probably in the article Nina and Tolik. And uh, as every peasant, as every inhabitant of a village in Ukraine, they are conservative. So they were waiting for more instructions. They didn't receive the instructions. The only church in this village is of Moscow Patriarchate, and it is closed. And actually, they met uh, a visiting priest uh, for some kind of special event two, two months ago. They didn't like him. So they, they will not go to the church, but they will still celebrate on the 7th of January, together with Russia, sort of for old calendar. I think actually the western part of Ukraine will celebrate on 25th, but they were already celebrating even before, especially Catholics and Greek, Roman Catholics and Greek Catholics. Do you think that this slight change to the, to the rules in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, will that lead to a kind of division, I suppose, between those who choose to celebrate on the western dates and those who stick to the old Russian calendar dates? Well, I mean, the... I would say the churchgoers of Moscow Patriarchate probably will stick to the old calendar and they will feel more sort of defiant to any changes. But for most of Ukrainians, actually, to have double holiday, double celebration is uh, fun. Yeah. I mean, we have tradition of celebrating New Year and Old New Year. Uh, and, and and actually, it's, it's normal. I mean, everybody knows that the, the main New Year is on the... 31st of December at midnight, but the old style New Year is also celebrated uh, maybe with a bit less bigger, but with the same kind of joy on 13th uh, of January. Hmm. And Svetlana, will this be your first Christmas spent out of Ukraine? And I wonder if it is, what Ukrainian traditions you, you'll try to observe this Christmas season when you are so far from home? Actually, it won't be because I'm going to Ukraine for Christmas. Oh, good! To see my family because it it, it has been always our tradition that all family comes together on Christmas, mm. and Putin is not gonna take the tradition from us. Wow! So will this be your first time going back to Ukraine since yes. the war started? Oh yes. well, what a Christmas treat that'll be for you. <laughs> yes. And what what are the particular Ukrainian Christmas traditions that? you're most looking forward to, to enjoying when you when you go back home? 
uh, for us it is just when all family comes together from all over the country they take a long trip and mom cooks 12 dishes I don't know what about that this time because there can be no electricity no power anything mm. So, but we will just be happy being together and it will be the first time for my family celebrating Christmas not on 7th of January but 24th. Oh, so they're, they're, your family are changing to the new... Yes, yeah. they are very conservative too, but the full-scale war changed their minds and they don't want to have anything common with Russia anymore. So it will be the first time when we will be celebrating Christmas on 24th. Do you think there'll be a lot of Ukrainian families who make a similar decision to yours and is that a sign of a, of a hope that, that Ukraine will become ever more European I suppose in its traditions even after when this war is over? Yes definitely but I would say there are still many conservative people for whom like church and beliefs are something different and they prefer to stick with the traditions how their ancestors made it so still a lot of ukraine ukrainians will be celebrating christmas on 7th mm. but i see already the big change because earlier we couldn't imagine that we will change the calendar as the rest of europe you know yeah and andre i wonder if you could tell our listeners as you're speaking to us from your village just outside of kiev about how the war has affected uh, the celebration of Christmas. I've read that Vitaly Klitschko has made an effort to make sure that a Christmas tree is erected in Sofia Square in Kiev, as usual. Uh, you know, do you think that those kinds of symbols of defiance, of, of carrying on over Christmas, are very important? Well, they are very important. Although in Kiev, officially, it is not allowed to have, I think, sort of special decorations of the windows, the uh, light garlands or things like this but in our village already some houses are decorated and in the darkness actually you you see these small lights playing around the windows but what is interesting i think uh, even if the celebration will take place in some uh, villages uh, the old style on the 7th of january the kids uh, who are coming to the houses next morning Usually, I mean, they are singing traditional Ukrainian Christmas children's songs, which are called kolatki. So when the kids are singing these songs, they are supposed to be given money and sweets. So, but I mean, the wording, I mean, there are already new texts of these songs, new lyrics, where the kids not asking for sweets, money or anything else. They are asking to charge their mobile phones. <laughs> they ask asking to share with them some electricity. Gosh. And, and, and I mean, they... I'm sure they will be seen in this. So, I mean, the Christmas melodies will be different. The Christmas meaning will be different. And it will have, a, of course, it will have a feeling of war. Uh, because actually, it's not a feeling of despair. Mm -hmm. Not any trace of despair, but some kind of update. It is updated Christmas traditions in the wartime, obviously. Yes. Well, I think it's a, a, a beautiful uh, symbol of glimmers of hope and light within within darkness. Svetlana, on the question of hope, I think it's safe to say that, at least over here in, in the UK, a lot of people in the media and in, and in public life have been surprised, very pleasantly surprised, but, but surprised nonetheless, at the effectiveness of Ukraine's counteroffensive this year. And I wonder, are you hopeful that by next Christmas, things will have returned to normality in Ukraine? 
I would say Ukrainians are hopeful that till the end of the winter the things will return to normality because even Zelensky and our government keep saying the most important is to survive this winter. So Ukrainians got it like a hint, like, okay, we survived the winter and we win in spring. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, for, for sure everybody is hopeful. And even now celebrating Christmas and New Year, it is more to give our children a chance to know how it is to celebrate, you know, not to take these holidays away from them, even during the war. So there still should be some joy that our soldiers are fighting for, because they are fighting that people uh, in the rest of Ukraine can't continue living. Well, Andre and Svetlana, thank you very much indeed for joining me, and Merry Christmas, and Svetlana, I particularly hope you have a, a lovely Christmas traveling back. Thank you, thank you very much. And here is the classicist Mary Beard to tell us what gives her hope. I'm not usually a sentimental old granny, but right now I think it's my three grandchildren, six months to three years, that give me hope. The world may be collapsing around us, but there they are, learning how to be people, learning how things work, learning about pleasure and sadness, and so optimistic for the future not yet having discovered pessimism. Just watching them gives me hope and a strange confidence in the future. Thank you, Mary. Now a special Christmas treat for our listeners. In the Christmas issue, Tom Holland interviews the author Robert Harris about his new book, Act of Oblivion. In the full interview, which you can read in the magazine, they discuss everything from eco-radicals to why the monarchy is so essential. They have kindly allowed us to hear some of their conversation. I, Because I read it during the final two weeks of Liz Truss's prime ministership. And what affected me reading it with that background was the incredible sense of yearning that your characters have for a degree of normality. To feel that chaos <laughs> has been brought to an end and the constant process of revolution, whether it's from one side or the other, has, has slightly been put to bed. And I felt that very, very strongly as a result of the political context that, that, that we were living through. And of course, Britain in the 17th century and particularly around this period was a byword on the continent for kind of mad political experiments and kind of monstrous anarchy in a way that, that, that probably... We are used to thinking of ourselves as bywords for constitutional stability and for kind of sensible, pragmatic politics. But perhaps there's a faint sense in which the past few years have been a return in that sense to the 17th century. Yes, I think that that's, I think that that's true. I've just got back from a publicity tour of Germany and this is very much, you know, they're, they're kind of wondering at this country which, with its reputation for pragmatic deal-making, no big grand schemes, no sudden lurches, observance of the rule of law, stability. Where on earth has it gone? I mean, and not, not in any antagonistic sense, but in a sort of, uh, oh my goodness, what, what's suddenly gone on? And that is, uh, I think that that is one of the reasons why the the book has seemed to strike a, a chord to a degree because it is about this period of huge tumult in our history and it does raise the question of whether we need an act of oblivion now, whether we, uh, 
or, or at some point in the future at least, to forget the crimes of the past and merely hang a few of the leading advocates. <laughs> well, I'd, I, I'd I limit it to you. five. <laughs> I won't ask you which five you would choose to hang. So could I also just... Uh, you've written a, a lot about the past, but as I said at the beginning of this interview, you've also you've, you've written a number of books set in the present day. So you wrote a, a book that has generally been thought to be a portrait of Tony Blair in a, a kind of post-Iraq war exile in America. Would that be I think, a reasonable... I think, we, I, I think the one has to concede. <laughs> Put one's hands up for that. <laughs> yes, finally. And, um. and, and you wrote a book on um, the papacy, on, on the election of a pope in Rome. And you wrote a really extraordinary work of science fiction, which is a kind of blend of cyberpunk and Frankenstein. And then, and then also you wrote a, a novel set in the very deep distant future where it's, it's a Britain that turns out to have forgotten, you know, set, what, 500 years in the future, is it? Eight, and it's seven, forgotten industrialisation. Yeah. 800 years. There are kind of hints there of science fiction. Is that a, an interest as well as historical fiction? Is that a kind of part of your literary interest as well? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, I, which I hadn't really thought about very much, but I realised when I look back that one of the novelists, writers I used to read an awful lot when I was younger, in boyhood and on, was H.G. Wells, mm. The Time Machine, the, uh, you know, those, those novels that were sort of grounded in what science might do and become, how we might be, and as well as fantasies like The Invisible Man and so on. I read them all. And, of course, Wells was incredibly interested in politics and uh, used the tools of, the imagination, of his imagination to address political issues, social issues. And I think there may be a bit of these... Because I know that a lot of people thought The Second Sleep, the novel about the post-apocalyptic novel, was a, was a strange thing for, for me to have written. But in a sense, I, you know, it is part of this fascination with politics. I'm not interested in writing something set in outer space. I mean, I say that, and then, you know, the next thing I you know, might I'll, be. Be, I'll be writing something <laughs> set on a new galaxy. Every time I think that I've, I've finally stopped wandering, I set off down some other avenue. But that's the great pleasure. You asked right at the beginning whether how I see the past and want to go into the past. And I think one of the things I do strongly feel, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, is that essentially a man like Cicero is virtually no different to us. If you read his letters or, or his speeches or his philosophy, it's very hard. I mean, you know, he could be Lord Chancellor or something now, except he's too clever. He's not an alien figure. He's not strange from us, is he? It doesn't seem to me. I, I think there are aspects of him that are very familiar. I mean, him worrying about the cracks in the wall of his... Uh one of his villas or whatever, that's, it seems incredibly familiar. The struggle to keep his head above water during the collapse of the Republic and to stay alive. I think the Roman Republic is in a way unfathomably weird. And certainly what I have found over the course of thinking and, and writing about them, the more I do it, the stranger the Romans come to seem. And I think that Cicero is, is a really fascinating example because he he in a way has conditioned us and when i say us i mean west europeans people have been reading him for profit 
for centuries and centuries and centuries and he has been the bedrock of the education and so in that sense he has kind of forged and shaped our understanding of what politics is of what philosophy is and so on i suspect the culture that produces him is much more i mean i i suspect it's not really like washington but i i don't think that you know in a novel i don't think that matters in any way i i accept that completely i i I, it's only that if you take his philosophy and I know you must have read it and so on, one is struck by its similarity to the message of Christianity, that the good life is the life of helping others and uh, doing good, and that's the only way to peace, and it's the only way to immortality, to a settled feeling of not being afraid of death, is to have lived that life. And if you live a life like Caesar, he thinks his is a wretched life. That seems to me to be quite a bridge to our our times. I know you may, I'm sure you're right, that he was an exceptional, exceptional person, but that and his dislike of the games and military matters generally and so yeah, on. Yeah, I, you see, I, th- I think that we are closer to the, to the religious radicals that you write about in Act of Oblivion than we are to Cicero. I think Cicero is a more distant, stranger figure than those are, even though you can absolutely imagine sitting down and having a chat with Cicero about what's going on in the in the world i you know he 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 feels more familiar to us but i think that if you think about the utter conviction that the religious radicals have that the last shall be first and the first shall be last or that you know the fifth monarchist the idea that christ will come and that the world is is threatened with its end i think that those are the instincts that are kind of roiling contemporary society well the the the, the, in, the fifth monarchist instinct i mean is one of the, re, the one of the reasons the religious right uh, supports israel is that it's the, to do with the rapture and the return of christ to earth this is a necessary stage as i understand it I I mean, it's, uh, I agree with you uh, entirely about that. And really, in a sense, that's my point, that the rationality of a Cicero is certainly closer to me than the 17th yeah. century or indeed the religious right in America now. I don't feel that the Romans, or that, at least that particular Roman and his philosophy, is that far removed from me, even after more than 2,000 years. But I think I think not just on the religious right. I mean, I was thinking of that in the context of the anti-oil protesters who've been kind of videoing themselves on bridges over the, the M25, that the, the sense of utter passionate conviction and the sense that a message has to be proclaimed and that without that, there will be no salvation seem to me, thinking about your book, not so distant from what the radicals were believing. I mean, the, the author of Apocalypse is different. It's it's not God's will. It's not an apocalypse that's been written in the book of Revelation. But it is, a, it is an apocalypse that is being visited on us for our sins. And in that sense, it seems to me that the currents are certainly recognisable, I think. Yes, and there's definitely a Puritan streak on the left among the radical, uh, radicals that enjoying yourself consumption is sinful. And um, you can feel that uh, stirring and that, um, yes, to shut down people's modes of transport uh, or or to attack works of art. I mean, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? That's like an instinct from the Cromwellians smashing (laughs) up the stained glass and burning the rude screens. They're not damaging them, are they? I mean, they're, they're, they're... They're making sure that there's, you know, they're covered with perspex. But, but I absolutely agree. You know, it is. A sh- it, it's meant to be shocking. It's meant yeah, to. It is it's to a- upset people. Yes, it it is. And the idea that too much ornamentation or luxury is a sin 
you, you know, I think is a, is, is a powerful thread running through the left. I mean, I have, you know, a kind of quantity theory of humanity when I look at the Roman period or the 17th century or 19th century France with the anti-Semitism and the corruption. It is that roughly half the population are pretty decent, actually. Maybe 30% are, well, they sort of obey the law, but they're pretty, they've got some pretty nasty <laughs> impulses. Yeah. They'd go to watch the hangings at Tyburn, and a lot of millions of them would. And then you've got, and here I'm starting to lose track of the proportions, but you've got sort of maybe 5% of really brilliant people and you've got 10% of kind of psychopaths and it's quite good. And societies go wrong, be it Roman or German in the 30s or, or Russia now, when the psychopaths get into the position of power. And, uh, I don't, and I think those quantities of human nature and human society don't really alter. And I'm always fascinated. You know, we've got the American midterm elections coming in. It's almost exactly 50-50. And you feel the same about the Roman Republic when it teetered over the edge. It was 50-50. What is it about us as a species that we can organise oh. ourselves so perfectly? 48-52, you might yeah, say. But, yes, but it's so close. Why aren't we just overwhelmingly one way or the other? It's like we have to seek to create this 50-50 division constantly. That fascinates me, and that's something that, that links us with the past, I think. And that, is, that does seem to me the tension that runs throughout so many of your novels, the sense that there is a kind of 50-50 division, and what is, the, what is the man in the middle to do about that? Precisely, exactly. And that's why I've always had a kind of sneaking, unfashionable respect for politicians like Harold Wilson, dedicated to keeping the show on the road, balancing... And, and Clarendon and Cicero. Yes, and, you know, yeah. balancing the forces on either side. Well, and Chamberlain as well. I mean, that's... So So your your novel about Chamberlain at Munich, I mean, that, a bit like with Cicero, is is a, a politician trying to balance who, who falls over. I mean, so is the... That is the... Tra- that, is that the, the kind of... What would what give you a, a political tragedy? And also your portrait of, of, of Tony Blair, I guess, also, likewise, is a political tragedy. Yes, I think that one of the reasons I could never be a politician is that you can see all sides. And really, if you're a novelist, it's a professional requirement that uh, you, even the villains, you inhabit their head and you give them their due. So, yes, that's, I admire those people there's a wonderful speech that, or letter that Cicero writes about the Caesar and Pompey and how he thinks of the role of a statesman as being that of a doctor to kind of tend the ills and change the remedies or whatever and to keep the peace and let people have a, enjoy life. And he said, I assure you that neither Pompey nor Caesar has not for an instant ever <laughs> seen politics in that way. And it's true, isn't it? They would never have thought... I mean, Cicero no. may be... Well, maybe suspicious of it, cynical about what he's saying, but nevertheless, I think there's a, a more than a grain of truth in it. And those are the sort of politicians that I admire, and they've been in pretty short supply, I must say, in recent times. Thank you, Tom and Robert. And now, here's the author Susan Hill on what gives her hope this Christmas. 42 years ago, two boys in my daughter's reception class were diagnosed with intermediate risk neuroblastoma a cancer that develops mainly in the under fives. Treatment was only palliative then, and both boys died. Now, the treatment is chemotherapy, and the long-term survival rate for the same stage is between 90 
95%. A year later, a neighbour's son, aged six, died of a brain tumour for which there was neither treatment nor cure. Today, again after chemotherapy, and depending on the type and location of the tumour, the survival rate is between 70 and 85%. A friend's granddaughter, aged five, celebrated being brain cancer-free after two years of oral chemotherapy. She is now nine, and it is certain that the tumour will not return. Children and adults with cancer and other previously fatal conditions are being cured when not many decades ago they died. My granddaughter will grow up into a world where more and more diseases may be unpleasant, but there will be an even wider range of treatment options and cures will be the norm. Next, for the magazine, travel writer Sean Thomas writes about his experience of a recent cruise across the Antarctic Peninsula, a trip which he says gave him a new answer to the question which perpetually plagues him. What is the best place you have ever been? He joins me now, along with the explorer and author Felicity Ashton, who in 2012 became the first person to ski solo across the Antarctic. Sean, I think everyone is dreaming of a white Christmas, but perhaps none more so than yourself after your recent visit to Antarctica. Could you start by telling our listeners why you think that Antarctica might be the best place on Earth? Well, I've been a travel writer for decades and... I've been to a whole bunch of very lovely places. I'm very lucky. And all through that career, people kept asking me, well, what's your favourite place then? It was, a, it was a kind of a question I couldn't really answer because there were so many wonderful places, you know, and it depended what you wanted. If you want nightlife, don't go on safari in Tanzania. You know, if you want a really epic landscape like you know, Wagnerian, don't do Denmark. But then, <laughs> then I was commissioned to go to Antarctica in just before, at the very end of 2019, sort of poignantly before the beginning of COVID when travel ended. And I got on my cruise ship in Ushuaia in Argentina and we sailed south. And as soon as I saw this massive iceberg, like an ethereal crystal aircraft carrier floating on the sea, I realised, my God, this is a very different place, a wonderful place. And it, it just got better from there on. It was astonishing. And Felicity, what about you? What started your love affair with Antarctica? Well, my first visit to the continent was at the age of 23. I was a brand new graduate and my very first proper job was with the British Antarctic Survey, which is the UK's main government funded research program down in Antarctica. So I was posted to one of the UK's two research stations in Antarctica. So I sailed down the Antarctic Peninsula knowing that at the end of that journey, I would be dropped off at this tiny little outpost and that would then be my place of work and my home for the next two and a half years. So it was pretty, there was this amazing intimidating landscape and environment to get to know of Antarctica, but there was also this sort of backdrop of of knowing that this was going to be it for the next couple of years. You you went by yourself for those two and a half years, I hope. Presumably you had other, you had company from other researchers and scientists and and so on yeah there were times when I wish I would have been by myself yeah um, (laughs) so during the summer it's a pretty busy place there can be up to 85 people living and working on this tiny station but then come the Antarctic winter everybody leaves and there's just a skeleton crew of around 20 people that are left behind and you're physically cut off from the rest of the world there's you know the 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 sea freezes aircraft can't reach you but you, you do have some comms and things but it's a it's a peculiar 
situation where you have to be very good in your own company, but also very good at living very closely with a group of strangers that you don't get any choice in who they are uh, for a long period of time. <laughs> well, perhaps, Sean, I mean, as a travel writer going going to Antarctica, would you have had a similar experience with the with the other travel writers on the same trip? I mean, you obviously, whenever you go do a travel piece, uh, journalists are often in contact with um, with a sort of small group for a for a period of time, but with somewhere as remote as Antarctica, perhaps you were in even closer quarters than, than normal. Well, I, I can't say I suffered quite the same hardships. Yeah. <laughs> it was a massively luxurious cruise with amazing food <laughs> and, uh, you know, and helicopters and stuff. It was really, you know, they, they laid it on thick. And, but I did, we were, you were on a boat with us with a bunch of people for 12 days and, but because of the nature of Antarctic tourism, this is not adventuring, it, it attracts quite a lot of wealthy people. It's expensive, but they're often really quite interesting. The kind of person that wants to go to Antarctica is generally really curious and intellectual and and, and determined. And you, you meet some crazy people there. I met some software billionaires. I met a famous professional golfer. I met an opera singer, you know, a couple of Japanese lesbian artists. It was brilliant. And you meet them every night and you have dinner. I mean, it is easier than... than but yeah, it, it, it's a different kind of enclosure and claustrophobia. Mm. But... Um, but there are, I suppose there are similarities in a way. And Felicity, eventually you actually got your wish of having a more solitary experience in Antarctica because you became the first woman to ski solo 1,744 kilometres across Antarctica. I guess my first question to you is, are you mad? And second question is, how on earth did you prepare for such a, uh, what must have been an insanely challenging experience? Yeah, I, I'm worried that I'm coming across as a complete misanthrope here. That, you know, that the point of doing that journey was not necessarily to, you know, isolate myself from the rest of the world and from any other person, but um, it was out of curiosity. You know, I, I'd read lots of stories about big journeys that people had made by themselves, and by that stage, I was familiar with the Antarctic environment in the centre of Antarctica, which is quite different from the peninsula in that there is no life whatsoever. There is no big geography, really. It's just that flat white horizon, the straight line dividing snow from sky and, you know, the same view, 360 degrees, and then you can walk for a thousand miles in any direction and still turn around 360 degrees. And the view hasn't changed at all <laughs> throughout the entire time. So I wondered, you know, what it would feel like to be out in that environment by myself and how I would react as a person to that and to that challenge and there was something wonderfully sort of complete and yet so simple about traveling from one coast to the other to completely traverse an entire continent by myself and particularly a, a continent as empty as as Antarctica and it and it was an extraordinary experience um, to have had. Well, Sean, so as someone who visited Antarctica from a tourism capacity rather than an expedition or research or, or the rest of it, would you return there again? And, and would you return there? Could you be tempted to return there in more of a, a capacity of expedition such as Felicity just described? Yeah, definitely want to go back. It's great. But also, I, it wasn't all just sushi and staring out of the window. They sent us out into the Antarctic Passage. For instance, I did Antarctic kayaking, which is very, very intense and pretty dangerous. Uh, it was only invented 
10, 15 years ago. And we were with the guy who invented Antarctic kayaking, leading the team. And he put on these, it's like going to, to Neptune, you put on five layers of wetsuits. Because if you go in the water, which is quite possible, and if any of the water gets in, you die really quite quickly because it's so cold and it, it, it's such violent seas. So we went out there and they took us to a lovely cove and we met penguins and seals. And on the way back, this storm kicked in. And the team leaders started to panic that they weren't going to get us back to the boat. And we could see the panic in their radio communications, the walkie-talkies. And then they were sending out all these emergency boats to get everyone in. And then they ran out of emergency boats. And at one point, I genuinely thought, oh, my God, this is it. We're not going to make it back to the boat. The storm is absolutely driving into our faces. We could die here. So, yeah, I really did interact with Antarctica quite intensely. (laughs) (laughs) But then also that's what I wanted. I wanted danger and excitement. I mean, Mm. you've got to want that and expect that in Antarctica. It's a very hostile, albeit beautiful place. And my my final question, Felicity, is that if I've uh, got this right, you started your expedition at the end of November 2011, and that expedition took 59 days to complete. So... Will you tell our listeners, how did you spend Christmas Day? Did you mark it? (laughs) Yeah, well, it it was uh, really quite stark how everything that you associate with Christmas, you know, good food, good drink, being surrounded by those you love, getting lots of presents, all of those things, maybe moments of reflection or spirituality. There was none of that in Antarctica. I was just in a tent that wasn't wider. You know, if I held my arms out either side, that was as wide as my tent. And then it was only as long as the length of my body. And uh, I only had precisely what I needed with me in order to stay alive. So dinner was a freeze-dried spaghetti bolognese. I didn't have even so much as a little miniature of spirit to uh, toast Christmas or the new year or anything like that. So, you know, I deliberately tried not to dwell on it too much because it had the potential of making me feel quite devastatingly alone more than I did on a normal day anyway. But uh, so, yeah, Christmas was very different <laughs> that year. I have I have one question. I did a lot of reading about Antarctica, obviously. And you, you did a winter there. At, yeah, is that right? You did a whole winter in Antarctica? I did two consecutive winters wow. I on, mean, on the research station. Yeah. I mean, from all my, I've, my reading, that sounds intensely difficult. I mean, they give you do they give you psychological tests to make sure you can do it and that kind of thing? Uh, well, no, it's it's a funny, it's a peculiarly British recruitment system. When I was recruited to the British Antarctic Survey, my acceptance was done on the basis of a half hour interview with okay. some people who had previously wintered themselves. And then a medical, that was it. Um, there was no psychological testing at all. And I believe at the time, BAS was the only national Antarctic programme operational in Antarctica that didn't do some kind of yeah. uh, psychological testing. But there have been stories from other national programs where the psychological testing hasn't been done right and that can lead to quite catastrophic consequences for example if you get 20 identical personality types trapped inside a single station for a seven month winter I mean you can just imagine and you know and there have been arguably fatalities that have resulted um, from basically bad team management so (laughs) I think you have to be that there is something to be said for the British system of putting you in a room with someone who's had this experience before to see if you are the sort of person that might well cope well or otherwise with that. Thank you, Sean and Felicity. And now here is the columnist Peter Hitchens to tell us what gives him hope. These words about the passing of the material world, the earth and the heavens, from the epistle for Christmas Day, now alas, rarely read. They shall perish, but thou remainest. 
and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Finally, pantomime dames are as synonymous with Christmas as mince pies and a spectator Christmas issue. But what makes a truly great dame? That is the question that Robert Gore Langton asks in our magazine. He joins me now alongside pantomime legend Christopher Biggins and Martin van der Weer, the Spectator's business editor and amateur pantomime dame. Robert, could you start by telling our listeners what you think makes a successful pantomime dame? Well, I mean, talking to Christopher about this, I thought one of the things that it absolutely has to be the dame must be a friend, if not a mother or grandmother to the children. And if you don't get that impression in the theatre and the kids don't get it, then the dame is a disaster. Mm. If it's anyway frightening the children or not being in loco parentis, um, I think you're in trouble. And I have seen that happen. And, mm. you know, I don't know if Christopher agrees with that, but I think probably you do. I totally agree with you. I mean, it's it's very, very important that the dame comes over as everybody's favourite aunt, favourite sister, favourite granny for everything. You know, it's, it's she's the all-time woman of all man and and she's she's fantastic it's a wonderful character i've been playing her for many many years in fact 46 years i've been playing her for i did have a year out when i did the jungle and i didn't do it that year when i became king of the jungle but then i it's interesting because i you'll you'll understand this listening to me now the only way i don't do uh pantomime dame is when i do cinderella because I'm far too pretty to be an ugly sister. <laughs> so what I do is I then play buttons, which I must say I've done many buttons, but I'm too old now. But it is just, again, a wonderful part. And especially if you have, you know, the pathos that he has because he's fallen in love with Cinderella. And there's a moment where she says, I'm afraid I like you. I love you but I don't love you in that way. So, you know, it's a great part. But n- normally I play the, the, the one of the um, dames and they're marvellous characters. And you just have to be, as you said, everybody's favourite auntie. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful role. And Martin, you are the Spectator's business editor, of course, but what our listeners may not be aware yeah. of is that at Christmas you transform into a pantomime dame Oh, no, you don't. Oh, yeah. oh yes, he does. <laughs> I do. I wonder if you could tell our listeners when you started doing it and what got you into it. Well, so, yes, Christopher, I, you know, I humbly present myself to you. I am uh, on the amateur stage. So 30 years ago in my hometown of Helmsley, North Yorkshire, I helped build a small theatre and I've helped run it ever since. And the most lucrative thing we do, as well as the happiest thing we ever do, is pantomime, which involves just about everybody, you know, in our community. A cast of 67 this year, if you count all the kids who are in double, two teams of kids. Yeah, but there are two teams of tiny tots and two teams of under 15s, I think. Anyway, what I was going to say is that actually in our form of it, the... Dame is a slightly raunchier character than in is described in Robert's piece. So I do the sort of smut, really. <laughs> and rather than being the friend of the children, I think I'm the friend of the dads and granddads who, yeah. you know, as a set out of a sense of family duty, have been dragged along to this thing. But at least they get a sort of earthy chuckle out of my dialogue. I mean, it's an unbelievably sort of happy, happy thing to be involved in. It's a joyful 
joyful. What's Fortnite. your opinion on what, what's your opinion on smut, Christopher? Do you, th- do you are you a sort of purist about the pantomime? No, game? no, no. Be? We have smut. I mean, you know, I'm I'm working with a wonderful comic called Ricky, who is a fantastic comic. And we do have it's not overly smutty, but there are innuendos, you know, which we pay attention to, and we and we do that for the dads and the mums. I mean, the other wonderful thing about which you, uh, Martin, came across you mentioned was the fact you make a lot of money don't you during a pantomime yeah yeah and that's the same with theater now in theater a lot of actors used to when i first started pantomime poo poo the idea of doing pantomime i did when i first did pantomime in darlington where i am again 46 years ago because i said i'm an actor i don't do pantomimes and they went on and on and they persisted in asking me and eventually one day they said and remember, this was 46 years ago. They said, it's a thousand pounds a week. Well, I thought, a thousand pounds a week? I better do this. So I did it and, of course, fell in love with it. Now, the other important thing about pantomime is it's a breeding ground for theatre. Because if that young audience have enjoyed themselves at the theatre in that pantomime, not only will they book for next year's pantomime, but they'll also book for shows in between. So it is a very, very important groundbreaking audience reaction, which 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 makes the the business in, in theatres thrive. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's terribly, terribly important, and I've I've never forgotten that. And you know, theatres need to make money, especially today. Yeah, and our, in our in our case, um, we struggle along unsubsidised small town multi-purpose arts centre, and our our panto, I think, roughly speaking makes about a thousand pounds profit per performance, which is quite a lot of money for a little arts centre. But I think one of the things to be said for it also is it's a tremendous exercise in teamwork. I've seen very amateur pantos where everything falls over, nobody knows their lines, and they think that's what is the fun. Well, actually, if you do it to a semi-professional standard, which I like to think we do, you have proper choreography all the technical effects are really well done. The carpentry and the painting is well done. The costumes are terrific. And that involves another God knows how many people in the whole crew. And it's just a lovely thing to have such wonderful teamwork. I spoke to Clive Rowe, who's a very distinguished dame, and he's in Mother Goose in in Hackney this year. He's fantastic. And he's a fantastic dame. But he grew up in, in Oldham, and he grew up, absolutely in the amateur panto scene and he said that for him is the heart of the whole thing mm. there were and, and he said actually if i'm being really honest the finest pantomimes in the world are all in scotland don't know quite what he thought but king's glasgow is probably where he went to but he thinks it's a community level activity and that actually for him that is more even though he's in a majorly commercial panto that for him is the business well on the subject of clive Rowe, uh, christopher i wonder if i could ask you about your thoughts on um, some comments that Clive has made that he worries that pantos might go woke and that women might be given acts as pantomime dames. I mean, would would you be very against that? Do you think it's very important that men have the role of the pantomime dame or, or does it not even matter? 
I would be very against it. And thankfully, I'm towards the end of my life and I won't see that happen, I don't <laughs> It already but has, It actually. could possibly happen, which would be such a shame because there is nothing... I mean, I know quite a few, not a few, but a few rather, not many women who do, very good actors who do play the dame and they're terrific. But there is nothing like a man, and Martin, I'm looking at both of us, a large man <laughs> in, in a dress... With a wig on and makeup. It is fantastic. And each time we come on, the audience laugh because we're in a fabulous costume, which looks wonderful. Now, if a woman came on in that costume, they might think they got that from the Women's Institute or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's not quite as funny. There is something initially very funny about a man in a frock. And that, I think, will always be, be seen. I remember in my early days of pantomime that a woman used to play the principal boy. And she, in Dick Whittington, would slap her thigh, which all the men in the audience adored, and say 12 o'clock and still no sign of Dick. So that's <laughs> very important. Now, I, when my producer first came to me and said, look, I'm afraid we're going to have to now use boys as the principal boy. And I was very anti it. But then I understood why. Because the boys do need an image of a man to look up to. They need that sort of thing in a pantomime. Martin, do you still have a girl play principal boy? Uh, not this year. We're doing Wizard of Oz and we've got a very talented young professional actress girl singing Dorothy. But in other years, we've certainly had a principal boy. Yeah, yeah, with thigh boots and a lot of slapping. That's what are your views, Martin, on the um, on the dame and whether the dame always has to be a, a, a man? Of course it should be a man. I think what's amusing in a way is that pantomime, you know, Robert knows the history, but it certainly goes back well into the early 19th century and it has roots much earlier than that. But it's gender fluid in a completely unfussy and uncontroversial way. You know, it got there... A, you know, centuries ahead of the, of, of the you know, the wokery of the modern world. And nobody challenges it because it's just traditional. And it's and hilariously it's funny. That's the thing. funny. And so you can do it in different ways. I, sad to say, I've never seen Christopher on set. I have seen Beric Kaler, who you write about, who was the joyenne of York Panto, who was just a bloke in a dress and sort of heavy boots and stomped on and talked like a bloke. And that was what was funny. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think proper dames objected to Danny LaRue in Panto because he was actually a sort of drag queen. And that's not what you or we are trying to no, do. No. It's, it's the fun of, you know. Beric is absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's a great friend of mine. I've directed him Shakespeare and uh, taken him to Barbados to do it. And he's a wonderful, wonderful actor. And he's a brilliant dame. And you're right. He really is a man. I mean, he could be in a, he could be dressed as a man. And, you know, it's very butch and very, um, uh, very much a man. But that's his dame. And he's done it for something like 46 years in York. I mean, he's amazing. And that is that is terrific. But I mean, Christopher, I, I just, why I, why haven't you got a knighthood for 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 being the oldest serving dame? It's, um, do you think that's a snobbery against or a, Panto? Or, a, or, a dame or, or would you be would you be Dame Christopher? Do you reckon? Well, I think I would prefer to be a dame. Yeah. I think that would be very marvellous. Uh, but I'll take a knight. I don't care. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we probably could. I mean, you know, it's not a bad record, is it's it? It's not. It's bad. not at all. Forty six years in pantomime. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I, I want to, Robert. I want to draw on something. Which, which Christopher said earlier, where he described how certain dame roles he thinks have a pathos to them. And I, I wonder if there's 
almost something quite Shakespearean about the dame. I know that might sound a little pretentious of me, but the idea of cross-dressing on stage, you know, it reminds me of the nurse from Romeo and Juliet. Is that is it stretched yes, too far to sort of little, say that has a kind of connection with... I, with the classical theatre. I, I don't know, but all I do know is that a lot of classical actors would love, secretly love to be in panto, and they're secretly terrified of it. And, and one of them that isn't is McKellen, who's doing Mother Goose yes. in Brighton, um, and I'm going to see next week. And I'm really looking forward to it. But I just wonder if he won't uh, overact, overacting. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I just, I wonder what Christopher thought of that, because... Uh, well, I, I saw him do Aladdin at the Old Vic, when he, which was his first day. Yeah. And he came to me for some advice, which I was absolutely thrilled and taken back with. I gave him some advice. He never took it. No, and, uh, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> he went on to be a wonderful dame. It's great. And I also, uh, Simon Callow, who is a Shakespearean mm. actor, did my, uh, when I was at uh, Richmond, played Abanaza, and he was brilliant. And he absolutely adored it. And I think there are straight Shakespearean actors who really relish the thought of being, in a way, a little bit out of control on the yeah. stage. I mean, it's wonderful. And they love the audience reaction. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. There's nothing quite like a panto. And thankfully, that will continue for many, many years. Yes, we'll hear, hear. Well, Robert and Martin and Christopher, thank you very much indeed for joining me and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you. And to you guys. And that's it for our Christmas special of the edition podcast. If you've enjoyed it, why not pick up The Spectator's Christmas issue to read the articles we talked about in full? I'm William Moore. I do hope you'll have a Merry Christmas and that you'll join me again next year. Mm-hmm.